Our scripture reading for uh, this morning uh, is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thank you, Ash. Good morning, everybody. I come to you a little bit tired this morning. We had the men's retreat. It's actually still going on, I think. And I would say we got uh, the most beautiful possible weather you could imagine. And it was a really great time, the, the time that I got to spend there. So keep praying for those guys as they travel home. They're probably on the way just about now. But it was fantastic. And for all you guys who couldn't go this year, I encourage you to set it up for next year. I think Danny will have a date for you pretty quick, and we'll do it again. It's been the third year I've gone on it, and it has been so meaningful to me. So I'd encourage you along those lines. This morning we're in one of the most fascinating passages, uh, I think, in the Bible, in the New Testament. I've, I've I've, I've looked a lot at our church history and our patristic fathers and the way that people have handled the scriptures throughout the ages, and many times we'll look at the Bible with two pinnacle moments, one being the Garden of Eden and the other being the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and we see a great loss in the front end, and we see a great recovery in the Garden of Eden, or Gethsemane. And so that is, it's such an intense moment. And I want to remind you, as we've been walking through this gospel according to Mark, we've been looking at a group of human beings who are walking in total devotion to Jesus. So they have, they have left their lives. They have departed from their old ways, if you will, and signed on with the Savior. And so they're walking and talking and living and watching. They have a meaningful relationship with Jesus. And the question that I want to ask you this morning, and it'll sort of govern our whole time uh, in this text, is how satisfied do you suppose those disciples were? 
How satisfied were they? As they follow Jesus and they truly believe in him, how much satisfaction does that bring into their life? Haven't you been a little bit, even just a little bit shocked at the way that these disciples continue to react to Jesus and engage with him? They're sort of jostled by Jesus under this divine bludgeoning, if you will. (laughs) Everything that he's doing and saying to them seems to be prying them off of that, that place that they were so cozy in. And he's, and he's totally overhauling some of their deepest held beliefs. He's deepened their hurt. So they were in pain because they were human beings. Now, as they walk with him, there's a deeper sense of it as they're struggling with who he really is. He has sharpened their fear. So what they expected the Messiah to come and do, he says, that, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And everything that they had hoped for the Messiah to come and do, he now says that's not going to happen. And oh, by the way, everything you know is going to come to an end. The temple state is over. Fear gets sharpened. He's accentuated their confusion. Hey, you guys have been reading the Bible wrong. (laughs) What are you talking about? We've been reading the Bible. We've been taught to read the Bible. Who was taught to read the Bible that for hundreds of years? We're confused by you. Hasn't he brought them to this jostled place. I think there are moments in the story where the truth of God really does register with them. There's no doubt about it. You see these moments where they, they seem to get it. So in, in chapter 8, Jesus sort of calls Peter to that spot. Who do you say I am? And Jesus like, or Peter's like, I get it. You're, you're, you are the Messiah. He, he seems to he seems to be satisfied in that moment, yes? It's, it, I think I understand this. Or maybe the, uh, the transfiguration. Jesus is floating and glowing, and he's around these patriarchs who are supposed to be dead, but they don't look dead, and you're looking at it, and you're like, all right, there's something going on here. This, <laughs> this isn't what I expected. I, I, I see something greater or bigger. So there are these moments of clarity, moments where Jesus really seems to help them, and yet they're fleeting. The overall story that we see is a story about men who are dissatisfied in life. And then after meeting Jesus and believing in him, they seem to be even more dissatisfied. And Mark's gospel brings us to that conclusion over and over again. And so there's something in that truth that I want to register in our soul as a community. Because I don't know that we often talk about Jesus in the ways that Mark does. I think sometimes we present Jesus almost more like a product. If we pry harder, we might ask this. How satisfied with life was Jesus himself? This man who walks with a sinless relationship with the Father. He has no tainted relationship with God the Father. A perfect relationship. Do we ever think that, man, if I have a perfect relationship with God, I will be satisfied? If we do think that, then the picture of Jesus in Mark's gospel might be a little disconcerting. (laughs) Okay? We'll see that today. Of course, many of you, I think, are saying, well, Ben, I think that depends on what you mean by satisfied. 
what, let's qualify that a little bit so we know what we're talking about. I think that's true. What I mean by satisfied this morning as we talk about it is that deep sense that your desires have truly been met, okay? So I have a desire, and because I have this desire, it's not yet satisfied, and when it's met, then I am satisfied. To go down to bipartisan here on Stark, there's a big Norman Rockwell poster that's got the Thanksgiving turkey, and it says, freedom from want. It's a picture of satiation, satisfaction. It's, it's that place where you have all the things that you desire. You don't feel incomplete. You don't feel as though there's something missing. I need that, and then I'll be whole, or I'll be okay. When that thing you have has, has been met, or you have it, now I'm satisfied. That's what I'm talking about with satisfaction. And I might put it this way. Which of the following two experiences would you say is most satisfying? You have to be honest right now. What would you say is the most satisfying? Having everything that you need or being told that you already have everything that you need? That's good, isn't it? You say, you say, uh, this side of the stage, you know, that would be a lot more satisfying than, than somebody just saying, no, you already have what you need. I think the story we're going to read is the story of Jesus and his disciples in the dark, in the small garden just outside the city wall. I think it's something we need, and I think it's a great mercy from God and, and I think it's a genuine mercy, and I need to remind us all that God's mercy is not always gentle. This story is very important, so I'd like you to turn with me to Mark 14. We have a longer bit of text today, and so I actually want to start in verse 26, and we will have to bookend the core middle passage is the one that Ashwa read for us. But let's start in verse 26. This is right after the Passover meal that we looked at last week. It's just, just after it, and they sing this hymn, and they had their first communion together. Jesus had said, I'm going to die. I want you to remember this moment, this Passover supper we're going to share together, and that's what we talked about last week. So that's done. They do that. Now they sing this hymn, and here we are in verse 26. Once they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, (laughs) even if they all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered today, yes, tonight. This very night, Peter, before the rooster crows two times, you're going to straight up disown me three times. You're going to deny me three times. Verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, no way, even if I have to die with you, I would never disown you. I would never deny you. And then all the others joined in Peter's chorus, and, they, and Mark says they all said the same thing. No way. 
We're not going to walk away from you? Are you kidding me? That tells you a little bit about their relationship with Jesus, yes? They loved this guy deeply. They had a meaningful relationship. Did it satisfy them, though? Once again, we have this kind of uncomfortable opener. <laughs> you know, Mark loves to cut to the chase. It makes you think a little bit, does it? So you have the Passover meal last week, and they all get together for the holy meal, and there's Jesus does his sort of divine bludgeoning, you know, welcome to the meal. Hey, guys, make yourselves at home. You know, to begin this evening, I just want to tell you that one of you is going to betray me uh, unto murder. And so, yeah, go ahead and have a seat. Peter, can you get the wine, you know? And you're just, uh, it's, such a, it's such an intense opening. Now, they also, they have their meal, they sing a hymn, they're all kind of settling into the garden in the evening for some quiet time and prayer time with Jesus. He says, hey guys, come on, get these olive trees, let's go gather around right over here, it'll be nice to begin this evening. I just want to tell you that, that all of you guys, literally every single one of you, you're all going to betray me too, and you're all going to totally abandon me and leave me to hang on the cross to die in isolation. Ooh. So yeah, you know, he has these really punchy ways of kind of waking him up, and it's, you're just, you're, if you're honest, you're a little irritated, you know, like, there's more to the story than that, Jesus, but he's cutting right to the heart of something really crucial, and it shocks them, doesn't it? They're just, what are you talking about? He's prying them, isn't he? We get irritated. Jesus, look, check it out, man. We know you mean well. But this intensity level is like 10. Could you just sort of tone it down to a 4 or a 5? This one of you is going to betray me. All of you are going to abandon me. This stuff's not very inspiring to us. It doesn't make us feel happy and lifted up. It's not helping your disciples feel better about themselves or their future at all. Like, not at all. In fact, it's kind of dissatisfying. You're telling us we're going to abandon you. You're telling us we're going to betray you. There's just no way they heard words like, you will all fall away. And then they felt something good about that. And as you can see, Peter, he just flat disagrees with Jesus. There's just no way. And then they all follow suit. But Jesus doesn't back down, does he? He goes Old Testament on them, Zechariah. He says, I'm the shepherd. I'm the shepherd that's like the one in Zechariah 13. I'm the shepherd like the one Ezekiel talks about. I'm the shepherd, the shepherd that God himself is going to strike. And when that happens, my followers, the sheep, they're going to scatter. This is happening. And then Peter, in true form, he gets even more triumphal. Never! These softies might drop the ball, Jesus, but not me. I'm going to be in it to win it with you to the very, very end. And notice how Jesus doesn't back down. He says, Peter, bro, I love you. I do. But you're going to be the worst of all of them. You're going to be the worst. The other ones will just run. You're going to actually pretend you don't know me publicly. You're going to betray me in front of the whole town. And I think we can hurry past this important moment in Mark's gospel. But if we don't hurry past it and really look at it, it draws us into a much deeper question about satisfaction in Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn back to chapter 8, verse 34. Same book, Mark. Mark 8, verse 34. This passage, if you remember, we called it the Markan Hinge. 
a major moment in the story where the story has progressed in a certain way, but in Mark chapter 8, the whole story turns. And it hangs on that question, who do you say I am? And he has just asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter has answered, by golly, you are the Christos. You are the Messiah. I get it now. I see it. So Peter has just had this. But then Jesus said, yes, I am the Messiah, but check it out. I'm going to be the one who dies violently. I'm not going to make the bad guys die violently. And Peter says, Peter's like, no, that's what the Messiah does. He makes the bad guys die violently. And, and Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. You remember this whole scene. And then, and then Peter says, no, 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 you're going to live. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, son. This is not the plan of God. You're standing in the way. So that's all happened. It's unfathomable to Peter that Jesus would not satisfy his expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And so he reveals Peter's heart in that moment. Peter has this very teachable moment. And here's what happens. He reveals to Peter the core motivating heartbeat that drives everything you're doing when you give your allegiance to Jesus and you choose to be his disciple, his learner, okay? This is the heart of it. Many of you are wondering, will I follow Jesus for realsies? Will I really give my life to him? Will I actually let his heartbeat be my heartbeat, what motivates me? And if you're asking that question, you say, what is discipleship about? What is Christianity about, the Christian way? Here it is, 834. Then he called the crowd to him among with, or along with the disciples, and he says, whoever wants to be a disciple of mine, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's Jesus' call to discipleship. To stand with him would require that Peter would need to deny himself, and as a result, he would need to lose his life. He would share then in Jesus' death. This is a hard-hitting instruction, but there it is. If you want to be my learner, you're actually going to live the kind of life that I live. And my life has a lot to do with bearing the cross. You're going to do that as well. Now go back to verse uh, 1431 where we're at this morning. Keeping in the back of your head this idea, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. You might think whoever wants to find satisfaction in life is going to die trying. Well, here in verse 1431, you see that same language. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I would never deny you. And all the others said the exact same thing. We'll all die with you. We'll never leave. But Jesus seems to think they will abandon him. So you can't help but to wonder why. Why did these men who had given so much to be with Jesus, who knew him, who witnessed him, 
They saw his power. They felt loved by Jesus. They genuinely believe in Jesus, do they not? Why, with all of that starting foundation, will they turn their backs on him and run away? Well, here's the scene changes, and we enter Gethsemane, verse 32. Oh, this was a heavy, heavy scene. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Verse 34, hear these words. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, he says. This is the one and only place in the Gospel of Mark you see that word. Abba. Father. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup from me. Take this responsibility from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba. In February, I was in Jerusalem, and I was by the Wailing Wall there in the old city. And I remember seeing this Jewish family coming up to pray at the Wailing Wall, and there was a little girl, a little bit younger than my daughter. She was probably about five or six years old. Curly black hair. Her dad, I think, was a Hasidic Jew. He had the hat and the curly hair and all that stuff. He was decked out. He was holding her hand, and she was holding his finger. You know how little girls do with their daddy. And she's just looking up at him, and she was wanting something from him. Abba, Abba, Abba. Her face is just beaming. It's glowing, you know. And he has this kind look as he looks down to her. And I, and I saw in that moment, yeah, that's it. It's that, it's that deep, deep, I trust you. You're trustworthy. You're safe. You love me. I love you. Abba, Abba. Here's Jesus crying out to God. I suspect Isaac thought something when Abraham was setting him up on the altar. Abba, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening? Here for the third time in the whole story of Mark, we see Jesus setting down to pray. The scene happens in Mark. He, he is praying at three different times, roughly at the beginning, the middle, and the end of his story. We only see Jesus praying three times in the Gospel of Mark. And it's always in isolation and darkness and in a late hour. But in the previous times, we noticed from Mark's writing that there was a sense of exhaustion. He just sort of, the crowds were overwhelming him and he had to get away. Here it's not exhaustion. Uh, Mark makes it really clear that this is about a deep internal turmoil that Jesus is experiencing. Is he tired? Probably. But what Mark wants us to focus on is that he is torn up inside. Mark says that he is ekthambesai. Okay? This is, a, this is an intense word. Imagine, imagine the, the language of shh. 
shuddering in distress. He's trying to pray, but he's shaking, okay? That's that language. And then Ademonin, he is in brutal anguish. A scholar named Vincent Taylor says this is one of the most important statements in Mark. And, and he gives this really powerful survey of the different ways that we've tried to interpret this passage through time. I'll give you a few of them right now. There's more. A guy named Lohmeyer says, the Greek words depict the utmost degree of unbounded horror and suffering. The utmost degree. You, it cannot get worse than this. Of unbounded horror and suffering. A guy named Rollison says it's suggestive of shuddering awe. And we know from other texts, he grips so hard that blood comes from the pores of his skin. Can you see it? You see him sitting under that olive tree, his disciples starting to sleep, and he's sweating and bleeding, shaking, please. His first feeling was of terrified surprise, the distress which follows a great shock. That's from Sweet. Appalled, agitated is another way to look at it. A guy named Lightfoot says this, it describes the confused, restless, half-distracted state which is produced by physical derangement or by mental distress, a grief, a shame, a disappointment. We might add a dissatisfaction to the nth degree. I have so wrongly interpreted this passage in the early years of my life. I just figured that Jesus, he knew he was going to raise again, so this was kind of more of a contemplative detachment, you know? He kind of does this almost for show so we can see that he was a human being for real or whatever, and I hear the verse talked about that way. What do we do with this, though? Because it's clearly not that. This is no contemplative detachment. This is raw human suffering at its worst. Jesus is in genuine horror. He is facing this moment, experiencing the utmost degree of unbounded horror and suffering. He cites Psalm 42, 6. He admits to his disciples that he is about to lose it completely. The New English Bible puts it this way, my heart is ready to break with grief. Does this sound like a man who's satisfied with his life? No, I don't think it does. Mark has gone out of his way to help you and I see something excruciatingly painful. Jesus is disfigured and dismayed. He's broken and deeply depressed. He's deeply anxious. He is filled with grief and sorrow, even to the point of death, as our NIVs put it. Do you ever feel that way? I do. Broken, isolated, lonesome, lost, depressed, anxious, frustrated. And so now the teacher has handed out the test. Will the disciples follow through on their promise to never ever leave Jesus? A teacher and a scholar named Chad Myers asks this question, can the disciples now be with Jesus while he prays in the heart of darkness for the strength to face the journey 
into the heart of power. Let's continue in verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter. Hmm. Simon, he said to, you kind of would say he'd say, hey, Peter, he said to Peter. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went, to, he went away and he prayed the same thing. Notice, I just picked up on this this week. He didn't just say, not my will, but your will one time. We're told he went back and kept saying the same thing. He's re-praying and he's crying out to God. Verse 40, when he came back, he found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Confusion. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, blepo, look. Notice what he said. Look, see, pay attention. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise up and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Oh, man, rise up. And what is the implication? Rise up with me. He says, let us go together with me. Even as you waffle, even as you fail, even as you fall asleep during these crucial times, I still want you with me. So come on, guys, let's rise up and let's go. See Jesus' great love and patience there in verse 42. We saw how Judas was a rot-gut betrayer, right? I mean, it's the most brutal betrayal ever, and yet Jesus says, yeah, you have a seat at my table. He doesn't kick Judas out. Jesus has said, I know where your guys' hearts are at, and I know you're going to abandon me, but he's still saying, I want you with me. You know, if he has my heart and character, it's like, if I know for a fact you're going to betray me, it's like, do whatever you want. I'm going to rise up and go away from you. He says, no, rise up with me. Let us go together. Jesus likes to pry us off of dead center, doesn't he? He's prying his disciples up off the ground. And why is Jesus calling Peter Simon? That's interesting, isn't it? That was Peter's name before Jesus called him a disciple. Is Jesus looking to Peter's behavior and, he, and, and maybe suggesting that he's gone back to his old way, as it were? He does not have the strength to join Jesus in this apocalyptic temptation. This is a revealing temptation to Jesus. Jesus is being tempted here. Tempted to not follow through on God's will. And Peter can't handle it, and neither can the rest of them. He doesn't have the strength to be in it with Jesus. In verse 40, where it said, none of them knew what to say to him. We hear an echo here. Maybe some of you caught it. It's the exact same phrase that we heard back in chapter 8. At the moment of the transfiguration, the disciples saw Jesus showing to them something about his divine character, and they, had, they did not know what to say. They're confused by him. Jesus is pressuring them. He's deepening their, their hurt 
He's sharpening their fear. He's accentuating their confusion. He's exposing their shame where it shivers. But my goodness, I don't think any reasonable person could make a case that shows Jesus bringing them a whole lot of personal satisfaction. (laughs) You know? It's just not happening. It looks like Jesus is interested in doing something very different. Something more than just making these guys feel good. More than merely meeting their desires to fill some kind of God-shaped hole. He's drawing them into the heartbeat of trusting. Trusting who? A suffering servant. Do you look at me, Jesus says, and trust that the way I lived is better than every other possible way to live in this world? Just like Peter will deny Jesus three times, here the disciples fall asleep three times. The whole narrative of discipleship in Mark is now before our eyes coming unglued. It's falling apart. But when Jesus says the hour has come, as Ched Myers points out, he's going to face the music that has been playing in the background since the beginning of his ministry. Mark has teased this all the way along, has he not? Here and there, he's let them know what's happening. Now it's time to face the music. And the next few moves that happen in verses 43 through 50 are absolutely crippling. Judas has slipped out of the story quietly. We don't really remember it even. He's just not there. And now he sneaks back in under the cloak of darkness with heavily armed troops having committed the great betrayal. He steps up to Jesus. Imagine this moment. Judas steps up to Jesus. Try to see Jesus' eyes. And try to see Judas' eyes. Can you see him? You know what eyes look like when somebody's lying to you. You know what it is when somebody's looking you right in the eye and they intend to harm you. There's Jesus looking right in Judas' eyes. Imagine Jesus' eyes. I don't know what they would be like. I would sense love and sorrow kind of mingled up in that moment. And then Judas grabs his shoulders and gives him a big kiss. The greatest sign of affection is loaded with evil and betrayal. Oh my goodness, what a cut to the heart. Judas is willing to betray a friend in his pursuit of satisfaction. He looks to Jesus and he sees a problem now. This Judas at first saw Jesus as the answer, which is why he decided to follow him. But now Jesus and the whole, the the product is not functioning the way that he thought. Jesus isn't paying out the way that he was supposed to, and now Judas is bummed about his investment. Jesus has become a problem, and so he needs to remove him. And he leads them to Jesus, and they seize Jesus, these officials and the high priests. And Jesus gets feisty with them, doesn't he? He says, you come to me heavily guarded? Are you joking? You think I'm going to fight you? You've watched me coming and going from Jerusalem all this time. Have you at any point ever heard of me suggesting that people are wise to violently fight with others? Ever? Have I ever even given that inclination? This nighttime ambush only further exposes how messed up and weak they are. They have, they, they have no political power. 
there's no way that they're working in the truth and they know it, so they have to keep it hidden. The truth is not on their side. They're afraid, so they have to go in the cloak of darkness and they have to manipulate and distort. And then Jesus fires this death blow at him. It's unbelievable, but not with a sword. He's not doing any chopping. He uses the scriptures to say, you guys do your thing. You're falling right in line with exactly what God had said. Unfortunately, you're the bad guys, but, you know, go ahead. You're obeying scripture, <laughs> quote unquote. It is this script from the Old Testament that these leaders cannot understand. It is this script that Jesus is giving to his disciples. They can see it enough to say they cannot follow it. Jesus understands it and he follows it, and it's the word that God has spoken. When the heights of dissatisfaction in Jesus are reached, when the disciples are faced with the great pain that they must endure, if they're going to remain with Jesus, they run. They scatter like sheep. The discipleship narrative has at this point now completely collapsed. All that we've been watching in Mark leading up to this following and this relationship with Jesus and whatever, at this hour, it all crumbles and comes apart. We see this very odd picture of collapse at the very closing lines. Look in verse 51 and 52. A young man wearing nothing at all but a linen garment. That tells you a little bit about how the weather was there. Not like October in Portland, right? I, would, I usually just wear one piece of linen in the summer when I preach, so come back in June. I'm just joking. He's just wearing a piece of linen, and he's following Jesus, uh, and then they seized him, and he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I think of it like Joseph and Potiphar's wife, remember? She grabs him by the coat, and to get away from her, he has to kind of get out from under his coat and run. Here goes this naked dude running off. That's weird. That's a weird sentence in the Bible. What, what's happening? Who is this guy? Is he just a bystander? Is he one of the disciples? Mark doesn't really tell us. It's not super clear, and I think that that's on purpose. Mark likes to do that, doesn't he? He wants to draw you in, you know? I don't know for sure what's going on here, but we'll talk about it a little bit more. Here's a little foreshadowing. There's two new terms in this sentence. Neoniskos, which means young man, and sindon, which means linen cloth. We haven't seen that before in the gospel. But you will see it again, where? When the same Neoniskos goes to the tomb, and in the tomb there are sindons, linen cloths. Mark's drawn a little bit of a parallel here, but we'll get to that later on. I, you can think about that in the meantime. That's good. But here's what I want to go back to now as we close. Those two points that we opened up with. Would you rather have everything that you need or would you rather be told that you already have everything you need? Which of those two would be more satisfying to you? <laughs> We'd rather have everything we need. You know, we don't have to lie. We're all on this side of the stage. We, we, yes, I would much rather have... I, I, I don't have a car, and I really need a car, and that would be satisfying to have a car. I don't want you to say... Yeah, you don't have a car, and, and you already have everything you need. It's like, is that your weird way of telling me you're going to be my new taxi guy and drive me wherever I want? I need a car. Here's where we need to be really careful, because where I go next, if you're not listening carefully, you're going to misinterpret this. I don't want you to do that. You and I, 
Because we are human beings, we begin our lives with a sense of separation and loss and isolation. And this creates a belief that we can fill the void, that we can be satisfied. Psychologists will say it kind of starts in the weaning process. It's the first time you're told no to something that you really want as a little baby. You're told, no, you can't have it. And it creates a psychological break in us and a fear. I, I, I need it. If I don't have that, then how can I, you know, and you're just a little baby. But then you keep learning that all through your life. This is what we call in religious language uh, original sin. That sense of separation or alienation every one of us is born with at a very, very deep level. Now, we also have a word that describes the thing that will satisfy you, the thing that will bridge the gap, make you not feel so dissatisfied. And that thing is what we call idol. Think capital I, idol. That's the idol. Wherever you are, time, space, culture, the idol will always be changing. So if you eat of this tree in the Garden of Eden, then you will be complete. Then you will be whole. Don't you want to be like God? What was, what was Adam and Eve thinking at that time? Like God would be complete, whole. And so there they are existing perfectly in relationship with God, already totally complete. But the Satan, the serpent comes in and says, but you're really not complete, are you? I'll tell you what, I know how you can be complete. Why don't you go ahead and eat that? And all of a sudden, Adam faces that. Oh, yeah, maybe I'm not complete. Okay, yeah, I do want to do that. No, I, I, do, I, I actually do need that fruit. You, you're right, that's precious fruit. It's my precious. If you own this iPhone, then that longing you have will be satisfied. You need it. Don't you see? You'll be popular and pretty and cool and well-connected. You have a longing and I can satisfy it for you, says Apple. If you serve at church, then you won't feel so empty in your life. If you, just, if you just serve and pray, if you just do that stuff, then you'll feel whole. You'll feel complete. That'll be what solves your problem. Do this. Buy that. Have this. No wonder we quit serving the moment it hurts. We're all lied to. We were made to believe that Christian belief and service would solve our problem. It would ease and take away our alienation. It would make us into this sort of tranquil people who don't have any more problems at all. When we can see that the concepts of original sin, excuse me, the concepts of original sin and idolatry are so tightly combined we can see that the sense of loss and nothingness and dissatisfaction we feel causes us to imagine some kind of object that can take that feeling away, something that will ease that longing. And I think, I think that this is what has come up in that language some of you, probably many of you are familiar with, with the, the God-shaped hole that we all have. 
I was taught this all through my youth. You've heard about this, this notion that everybody in their life has a sense of hollowness, and, and it's shaped like God, if you will, you know, metaphorically speaking. And, and so we try to fill it with, with IPAs or Packer games or bratwursts or winning things or degrees or whatever. We pursue all these fleshly, worldly things, trying to make ourselves feel full and complete. But we never, ever, ever are satisfied until we've put God in the God-shaped hole. And then what happens? Satisfaction comes, right? Look at what happens when we think this way. We've all said already that it is much more satisfying to have everything you need than it is to be told you already have everything you need. So we tell people and we tell ourselves that God will give us everything we need when we submit to him. Jesus needs to be rescued here in Gethsemane. Does God rescue him? I don't think so. I think I think. He goes to the cross and gets brutally murdered. In order to be satisfied, the disciples need to understand what's happening more fully. They need to have a sense of safety and security. They need to feel loved and appreciated. They need to be fed and warmed and taken care of and maybe given a parka and not just a linen. They need to be satisfied, don't they? Does God do that for them? No. He just doesn't. And Jesus knew that they wouldn't be satisfied, which is why he says, all of you will fall away, every single one of you. So why did he start promising, why did we start promising that God would take away that sense of loss, that deep anguish that you feel in your life? He didn't take it away from the disciples. He certainly didn't take it away from the apostles. He didn't even take it away from Jesus himself. Jesus, perfect, sinless relationship with the Father. He did not take away his dissatisfaction with life and what was going on with him. And the story of the Garden of Gethsemane proves it. But look, unlike Adam, who listened to the Satan, who listened to the serpent and obeyed the serpent, Jesus instead obeys the Father, and he says, no, my soul is shattering here even unto death, but I will not give up. I am going to follow your will, God, no matter how much dissatisfaction it brings upon me. Why? Because Jesus knew that the curse of sin puts every human being in the grave, including him. Is not every gravestone a testament to the fact that we don't get our needs met in this life? Even though he didn't sin by taking on a human body, he experiences that deep sense of alienation and loss, and so he goes to the grave feeling it. Why have you forsaken me? He says, not, it's all good, I feel great. Where are you, says Jesus. Why have you forsaken me, he'll say. He'll cry out to God, take this cup from me. He's shuddering and shaking in the moment. It's so intense for him. But he still knew that there was no fruit on the tree that would complete him and make him feel better, right? He knew that even if he got his will, even if he got to survive to see another week or day, 
It wouldn't actually satisfy him. And that the only satisfaction would be found ultimately in the Father. And he knew he wasn't going to feel it this side of the grave. So he bears his cross, perseveres with the will of God, takes it into the grave. And then he says to us, come, bear your cross and follow me. This life is about trusting that that is true. Peter himself, this one who most terribly abandons Jesus and disowns him with a great betrayal, will later write in 2 Peter chapter 1 that you already have everything you need for both life and for godliness in what you have known through Jesus and the gospel. You already have it. And we say, That's, what are you talking about? I need a car. And, he's, and he there in that moment should be blowing your minds up and causing you to say, whoa, I have really gotten chained into this material world. Jesus says at the end of John's gospel that he's not going to satisfy us the way the world satisfies us, which would be to fill that void with a false promise of satisfaction. Instead, he says, I'll give you peace, shalom, He says, all the troubles of this world are going to continue. Your cancer is going to hurt. Your divorce is not going to feel better because you've submitted to God. Your financial struggles are not going to magically evaporate because you started going to church or you have some esoteric religious knowledge about God so it doesn't feel bad anymore. We will experience the volatile ups and downs and throes of this life. But Jesus does give peace. Shalom. A sense of well-being and knowing that right now, already, we are firmly rooted in God. And the cross proves it. His peace comes when you see this scene in Gethsemane and the cross that's going to follow. And you realize that Jesus' cross is not how you and I get to God. You know the image, the little chasm. You're here, God's there, the cross makes a bridge for you. That's not right. That's not Bible. It's not the cross is how you get to God. The cross is how Jesus comes to you. There isn't something that you do that will make you more whole. In that sense, we almost make God into an idol. There is only Jesus. And as you live within his life, this world will continue to dissatisfy you. It's okay. And I would say there's a goodness in it. It is even good to be dissatisfied as you live in Christ. Because when you do, I think that it means you are embracing. You are embracing a life that turns away from the idol and turns toward God alone. Being dissatisfied in Christ is another way to say, I am denying myself so that I might die with Christ and therefore live. My brothers and my sisters, you here in this room, plus the dudes out at the coast and then anybody else who couldn't join us today, this road that we are walking right now is not aimed at feelings of wholeness and completeness this side of the grave. Yes, heaven is where our wounds are healed, but we're not in heaven right now. Our portion is love, and our portion is suffering. 
It is a road marked by suffering that we are walking with deep pain, raw, holy, divine goodness that lasts forever, both combined. We live in the life of a God who has become one of us, who lives a life where his own sorrow flows to us. But it doesn't just flow as sorrow, it flows as sorrow and love mingled down from the cross to us. So welcome to the last days on earth and welcome to the first days of the kingdom. This is where we live. I've gone a little bit long, but I'd like to close with the prayer that I gave to you in your bulletin. Does anybody have an extra bulletin? I need the bulletin insert. You got one, Roy? Thank you. I would like to pray this with you as our worship team comes up. I'm going to pray it. Um, I'll, I'll speak it, but I'd like you to read along and just hear these words. This is a beautiful prayer. O oh, persistent God, deliver me from assuming that your mercy is gentle. Pressure me that I may grow more human, not through the lessening of my struggles, but through an expansion of them that will undam me and unbury my gifts. Deepen my hurt until I learn to share it and myself openly and my needs honestly. Sharpen my fears until I name them and I release the power that I have locked in them and they in me. Accentuate my confusion until I shed those grandiose expectations that divert me from the small, glad gifts of the now and the here and the me. Expose my shame where it shivers crouched behind the curtains of propriety until I can laugh at last through my common frailties and failures, laugh my way toward becoming whole. Deliver me from just going through the motions and wasting everything I have, which is today a chance, a choice, my creativity, your call. O oh, persistent God, let how much it all matters pry me off dead center so if I am moved inside to tears or sighs or screams or smiles or dreams, they will be real and I will be in touch with who I am and who you are and who my sisters and brothers are. Father, thank you for today and this chance we have to come together and try to be with you in Gethsemane. Please continue to change us through your spirit. We love you. We trust you with our lives and with our church. Amen.